Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original. I'm James O'Hagan, and from LGBT Ireland, this is Invisible Threads, a Go Loud original podcast. You can find out more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTQ community on our website, lgbt.ie. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sean, a 62-year-old retired farmer living in Skibbereen who moved to Ireland in the early 90s from the US. Part of my role in LGBT Ireland includes running a weekly drop-in online coffee morning for older LGBTQ people. And I first met Sean when he started attending these in autumn 2020. When we chat on Zoom, I would always be fascinated by his background. What looked like hundreds of flowers and ferns and herbs and an enormous fish tank filled with an abundance of gold and white fish. He would commonly join with tales of his latest craft project and seemed to be proficient in everything from carpentry to crochet. He would commonly join with tales of his latest craft project and seemed to be proficient in everything from carpentry to crochet. This, I learned, was as a result of parents who had encouraged him to be self-sufficient. And this creativity and work ethic had stood to him over an incredibly varied career, from hairdresser in LA to farmhand in Texas and physio in the UK to florist in West Cork, and even two and a half years spent working in the wardrobe department of a circus in his home state of Michigan. Sean is kind and compassionate, and her phone conversations have been frequently interrupted by children who live nearby knocking in to ask for advice or to chat. He carries himself with a peaceful demeanour and with the sort of confidence of a person who's unfazed and has seen it all. I started by asking Sean about his early life and coming to realise that he was gay. I come from a military family, so all the males in the family, that, that's the thing you did, you went into the military. The dichotomy of my life is I was all over the place. I I had the most incredible childhood. But on the other hand, I was bullied every single day of my life and beat up a lot. They would call me, you know, you little faggot, you little homo, you know, and and whilst being bullied and beaten up, I just like, why are they calling me that? What, What is it about me that makes other people think that way of me? Is it because I can express myself artistically? Is it because I'm gentle in my nature? You know, speaking about this now is kind of laying the baseline for later in my life when when I was able to look back in, in hindsight and say, oh, wait a minute, you know, there really isn't a way that I'm supposed to be. 17 going into the Navy. Um, and, and all of these other things, being a highly sensitive person, uh, not identifying with any one particular group, but knowing deep down inside that I really liked boys. Um, I didn't really know what it was to be gay. I didn't know that there were other people that thought like me. Um, went into the Navy. And wow. <laughs> 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 what, what a difference. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm shipped thousands of miles away from my home and just just a, a very, very intense situation to go through boot camp. But we had expectations and you had to perform or or you got punished. So at the same time, I'm seeing that there are other people around me that that are very similar. My first submarine that I was stationed on was in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, 
got to the base and I'm walking down the, the gangplank to the submarine and standing on the submarine, there's, there's like a, just a little bit of the submarine in the conning tower that sticks out of the yeah. water was the most gorgeous, most handsome, well-built man I'd ever seen in my entire life. And we locked eyes for a, a very uncomfortably long period of time. <laughs> yeah. For weeks, I guess almost months, we avoided each other like the plague because I, I would see this guy even at a distance. I, I'd lose my breath, you know. I mean, he was just amazing. And um, finally, we, we became friends and had lunch and stuff together. But again, you want to be very careful of forming an intimate relationship that could be misinterpreted because I had lots of friends. Oh my gosh, we would, you know, kiss and hug and, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't in um, yes. the gay yeah. way, you know. And I suppose it's, it's kind of what you were, you were saying about kind of wondering about what it is that gives you away is that, you know, in your head, this feels different, even though with those other people where there is that strictly platonic feeling, it's just like, yeah, come on, have a hug, put your arm around each other, take a photograph. Whereas when there is that heaviness of that sort of dripping heaviness that comes with that sort of, um, I suppose, mutual attraction yeah, is, yeah. Uh, gives itself away a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because like I was saying, I mean, in, in the in the military under stressful situations, and being in a, in a submarine itself, just just there, it can be stressful, you know. Yeah, you're thousands of feet under the water. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine it. You, you develop um, very, very intense and very intimate relationships with the other fellows. That was at the first time in my life I had to say, you know what, I need to develop a way. I almost had to reinvent myself so that yeah. I, w- I wouldn't give too much away. You know, in, in, in my situation, like I was saying, my friend at that time and myself were getting closer and the attraction was, was unbelievable. We went on a camping trip as friends and, and came back as lovers. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. We'll leave out the graphic details. That's, yeah. a, that's another podcast. That's a different together. series. <laughs> and we, we were... were we used the term at that time, lovers. Uh, yeah. And we developed an intense relationship. We ended up living together. He bought a house. Um, he was from the area. Uh, Seattle, Washington yeah. is where we ended up because our ship went into dry dock. And whilst we were in dry dock, the ship was having repairs. It was about a year and a half, I believe. Um, unfortunately... Uh, my partner drowned. He was the ship's diver. He and one of the officers went on a qualification dive, dived down to 250 feet and were never seen again. So here I am in the Navy. I've just lost my partner. I've just come to grips with the fact, oh my God, there's another person out there. I just learned what gay people were. Yeah. And... The, the rest of the world is going on around me. Yeah. The ship is functioning as the ship has to do and da, 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 da. I went to, I went to my ship's captain or my, my yeah, the, 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 the captain and also the executive officer. And I said, 
I, I just have to be honest here. I'm, I'm hurting way too much. I said, I was in an intimate relationship with, mm-hmm. um, with this man. And this, this is tearing me up inside. And my captain sat down again, a very religious man. I think he was a Baptist and he looked me in the eyes and he said, you've been such an exceptional sailor. I'm, I'm going to have to just take my time with this, Sean. He said, because I, I, I need to figure out what we're going to do here in the interim period, because at the time, you know, it was not accepted. Um, I was sent away from the ship and all my friends um, and given a, a, a place that I had to report every day. And I would just go and sit in a room until they decided what they were going to do. I was one of the very first people in the U.S. military that was discharged honorably and admitting that I was gay. Sort of small progress in terms of being discharged honorably instead of dishonorably. But in LGBT Ireland, one of the things that we hear frequently um, from particularly older uh, members of the community who contact us is this sense of disenfranchised grief because the relationship which they had, which was so important, which was such a, a massive part of them and of their life is they're not given the permission to society doesn't necessarily give them the permission to, to grieve it. I mean, it just, it must've been a very lonely time. It was when, when they discharged me honorably and give me my paperwork, I went back to Texas and members of my family were like, well, this is what happens to people like you, you know, God doesn't mm-hmm. like this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, whoa. This is this is just too much. Yeah. I um I just I I, I went into a massive state of depression for the better part of a year. Um, I was working in a in a granary. At the end of the week, all the the lads uh, would get cleaned up, and then they'd go out to a bar. And a black yeah. man look that worked there turned around to me. It was a great fella. He was um, a, a, a brilliant work, workmate. Um, and he said, oh, I suppose you'll be going down to the 651 Club. And everybody else laughed, you know. And I went, the 651 Club? Never heard of it. So I went home. And, of course, back in those days, we had the telephone and the yellow pages. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I found the 651 Club in the yellow pages. And I yeah. rang. It was about 7.30. And I rang. And, and I said, I heard somebody mention this club and I was just wondering what kind of a club it was. And the guy on the other end just laughed. And he said, well, it's a country Western club for gay people. He said, and I went, oh, okay. Well, exactly where are you located? So, um, yeah, I, 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 I went to the, to the gay club. Um, and I just needed to escape. It was the first time that I went into a place knowing that everybody in there was going to be gay. Scared the bejesus out of me to, to, to walk in there. But I, I pulled it together enough to walk in. And I was sitting at the bar and I ordered my drink. And the next thing from behind me, I heard, well, hello 
I, <laughs> I, I nearly just lost it. And I turned around and there was this very rotund man with this big bushy beard and bib overalls. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, hello, darling. I hadn't seen you here before. You must be new around here. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like something out of some uh, hee-haw, you know, make fun of hillbillies kind of uh, program. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, um, no, it was really happening. And and he became my kind of like gay father. Um, and he he showed me the ropes. And this is, I mean, this is where, I guess, what we're talking about here today, this is where it, it came in. There was a connection between the younger people and the older people in the gay bars and in the gay community. You looked to the older people for direction. They would, you know, smack you down if you got too out of hand. They looked after you, um, you know, and guided you. And, you know, there was there was a, a terribly uh, big drug scene that was was happening around that time. This is early 80s, a lot of yeah. party drugs, experimental drugs. And, you know, this is just like, look, you're better than that. Don't get messed up in this stuff. And um, I suppose from, from what you've just said, I suppose, around just finding that, that queer support network and how important it was to have that as a guide. Um, and with the, the reputation that, that Ireland would have had in that period of time towards the late 80s, the early 90s as being very religious and, and, and socially not particularly progressive. What was it that, that brought you to Ireland? My, my father, after my mother passed away, my father moved in with my eldest sister who had uh, the family property in, in Balaliki. I was in the States. I was actually working in San Francisco and the company that I was working for went belly up. And I said, you know, I'm, I, there's nowhere I want to go. I had, I had been the, the width and the length of the United States and I said, I really, really want to go back to Europe. And I mean, that's I, I was I was raised in a, a household in a neighborhood that was very European, you know. So I, I knew I knew the lifestyle and I knew yeah. I wanted to go back to that. So um, my father had a, a house in, in Germany and I went to uh, Frankfurt, Germany. Um, and I, I got all set up to go back to university in Heidelberg. Um, my sister said, oh, let's go to the farmhouse in, in, in Ireland for Christmas. It was Christmas of 1991. Yeah. I said, oh, yeah, that'll be fun. And I never left. <laughs> <laughs> you stayed on the farm or did you, I suppose, did you come to Dublin, the hub of, of gay gay life in Ireland at that time? I just concentrated. I went to work in the family businesses and my sister and I um, started uh, several businesses. I think we, we had eight companies in total. So I, I was really, uh, the businesses demanded me to be uh, in West Cork. But what, once once it got to a point where things were settled down, I used to leave for weeks on end. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the businesses would close um, in the last part of September, early October, and didn't open again until St. Paddy's Day. Yeah. So um, I had a lot of time on my hands, and 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 I went to to, to Dublin, um, <laughs> and I walked into the George, um, and you know that feeling that we were talking about there yeah, earlier. So I had it all over again. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I walked in, 
and like literally like you see in the the movies they stopped and everybody turned around and looked at me and i was like okay i'm not making this up this is really happening to me (laughs) what was so bizarre is i was i was what 31 31 32 and a fellow walked up to me he said what are you doing on this side i was like oh what do you mean he said, you know, this is called Jurassic Park. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, you should be over in the other side with all the young people. I, I was shocked because it was so different from what I was used to. And I mean, oh, okay. You know, I, I went over there. Well, it wasn't for me. It was very disco-y you know yeah and um loud and brash and i i that, that wasn't me at all so i i went back to jurassic park and um <laughs> and then found a place in dublin i think it, it was it was called the the the, the front lounge yeah yeah just around know. the corner yeah it hadn't it hadn't been open i think that long and that was a nicer place to go but yeah you know, coming here in 1991 and coming to West Cork, like I said earlier, I, I felt like I was going back in time. My sister actually said to me, if you're going to be working in the family business, you can't tell anybody you're gay. It'll ruin our businesses. I, that's, I wanted to ask you about that sort of how, like, how did you m- marry your LGBT identity and your family identity when, when they were more intertwined again? Because obviously you had spent such a period of your life on your own you had gone to the navy you had, had been in, in sort of in texas and you had you know you'd built that life for yourself separate to your family but now it was intertwined again did you how did you manage that i reinvented myself i i said you know what i am going to be an open gay man in bantry west cork ireland and i suppose i'm just going to have to see how this works out and it worked out okay you know there were some rough moments and people who voiced their opinions and you know it was um i i, I know a lot of the the ladies that would come in um to the bakehouse were either friends of my sister for many many years or friends of my family i have a, a lot of family in the, in the area as well um but you know we'd kiss and hug and I remember this, um, this one, she came in and she, you know, she was the, 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 the brown woolen tights and the, the long jacket and the, the babushka on, you know, and she come up to me and she said, Oh, I wish you'd just go home. She said, you're just nothing but a Casanova. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, are you serious? Everybody in this town knows I'm gay except you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, driving the women wild. <laughs> yeah. Nothing but a Casanova. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it, here in West Cork, as I as I were as I started meeting more and more people, I realized there are a lot of gay people living rurally in West Cork, and then through my travels around the country finding out there's a huge amount of, I'm going to even be more specific and say older single LGBT people living in Ireland. And to me, it's a forgotten segment of our 
society, of our LGBT society. While everyone's experience is different and everyone's journey through life is unique, there are a common set of issues which we all face at different times or which impact certain groups of people at different times in their lives. I chatted with clinical psychologist and head of the Department of Psychology at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dr. Paul Dalton, about a few of these more common issues, how they affect people, where they have come from and what we can do to confront them. Until very recently, LGBTQ relationships were not given the same recognition or significance as heterosexual relationships. Stories of families prohibiting partners from seeing their loved ones once they had become ill, preventing partners from attending funeral services, or simply having to remain invisible and unacknowledged within the grieving process are sadly all too familiar. Paul spoke to me about the importance of having your grief recognised by society and how this helps you to heal. The loneliness and the, the wounds of that unrecognized grief, they last a long time. And at a time in our life when we lose someone that we love, probably the most important thing is that people recognize that. That's how we heal, you know, when we lose someone that we love. And for many people in LGBT relationships in this country and in other parts of the world, um, historically, when they've lost their partner, they have been denied that. It's more than comfort, you know. They've been denied that that opportunity for consolation and warmth and love. Just the recognition that you have lost someone who wasn't your your special friend or who wasn't your companion. And those things, you know, where th- those stories that I've heard from people too, you know, that even at the time of a funeral, that the partner was recognised as their friend or their best friend. In, in, in research and in kind of psychology land, they, they refer to this as disenfranchised grief. So disenfranchised grief is really, it identifies that experience when a loss is not recognised in society. So this happens too when at, at a time of miscarriage, for example, the loss um, of a child there that's unrecognised. And we heal when our loss is given voice, when it's publicly recognised. That's a really important step on the healing. So so, so much of that doesn't happen and that loss isn't recognised. How has your relationship with the gay community changed over the years? Now, as an older person, um, a 62-year-old person in the, the gay community, I have a, a, a plethora of, of experiences that, that I want to share, you know, and, and to, to, to be able to, I'm going to use the word mentor or even just to say to be a role model, you know, um, for for younger people and and you ask me about my relationship with the gay community now i want to be there to be able to say to people look it does get better you know you have to you have to unfortunately endure a lot in life in general um you know but uh, you don't have to put up with the bullying um there are some of these kids are not going to get the support from their parents. They're not going to get support from a uh, family. So to create this kind of support for this older group that we were talking about earlier, this younger group, 
um, and to be this kind of binding agent between the years. That's what's important to me. This is what, what I'm working for now. If you could change your identity so that you could just be heterosexual, would you want to? Yes. Let me first say I'm very happy with myself and who I am and who I've become and what I represent. I'm, I'm 100% happy with that. Um, I feel I'm a, a 100% um, person, you know, and, 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 and I'm, and I'm uh, delighted about what makes that up. But it, if a hypothetical question like you have there um, to say, no, it would have been a lot easier. Um, not that it would have been totally easy because that's not life, you know, yeah, no. but I suppose, you know, I mean, I have, I have a lot of nephews uh, around my same age. I have a nephew that's two years older than me, uh, same age as me, uh, two years younger, three years younger. Uh, they live in this area. Um, and, I see their life. So there's complications to life, but they have the wife and the kids and, you know, they, they don't have to worry about, do I come out to this particular person? Um, am I not representing my true self in this group? Do I need to tell this group that I'm gay so that they understand where I'm coming from? You know, they don't have to do that. Um, that would be the reasons, because it wasn't a choice. Although my relatives all thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's, where, that's where the mindset was at, at that time was that, yeah. why are you making life so difficult for yourself? Like, why are you choosing this path? And, you, you know, I think that for how hard a life it was and remains for some people like you wouldn't choose it i don't think <laughs> i think that, uh, to re-ask your question uh, if somebody were to say to me if you could choose an easier life would you maybe that maybe that's what i'm thinking in my head you know of yeah course, I know what you mean. the easier life you know no and who who isn't everyone's going to want that sort of that easier life rather than having to go through it as you said because it is about all these questions and then i suppose i the other side of that is when you when you look at the I suppose your your peer group who are married and and have children around them or whatever there's there's a security that exists there for them into their future that the gay community or and, and older gay people in particular d don't always have and th then th that creates mm -hmm. additional stresses for that creates an additional stress for you about like who's going to look after you. Who are you like when you're relying on home help? Is that person going to, you know, is, is that, are you going, do you need to like hide the rainbow flags or make sure that there's nothing that gives it away because you may or may not get the best, like the, the, the most inclusive treatment. There's all of these questions. Oh yes. And I, 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 I went through that James in, in 2016 with the diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. I, I was on death's door for a year and a half and I had people coming in to bathe me and take care of me. And it was frightening. And I mean, I, I was only 57, 58 years old when this was happening. I got a taste of what it's like to truly be on my own. I was living in the UK on my own when I was diagnosed and it happened all so quickly, and the next thing I know, I'm I'm I went from being <laughs> symptom I I had no symptom that pointed towards me having stage four colon cancer, and 
the next thing I know, I just I I was going to take a job overseas and I needed a, a physical and boom, they discover cancer. And there I am, you know, I mean, 58 years old is a, a bit up the ladder there. You know, um, I have said, like, oh, my word, what would this be like if I were in my late 60s and 70s? Who's going to look after me? The first three weeks that I came out of the hospital, my ex-partner, God love him, who remarried, came over from Germany and looked after me for for three weeks, you know, um, which was nice. And I was comfortable. But as soon as, as Darren left, I I had to rely on, on, on people coming into my house, people who their religious background don't tolerate homosexuality, you know, and it's like, oh, am, am, am I safe? You know, it, like you say, is everything put away? You know, are the pictures of me and my ex-partner stuffed away because we're, we're, we, we've remained best friends? You know, anything like that. It, it was it was it was um, very taxing while I was ill. And I think when you find yourself in that sort of a vulnerable position, the last thing you need to be worrying about is, is the person coming to give me the support I need going to be offended by the fact that there's a picture of me with my arm around a man on the mantelpiece. And the reality is thinking about it with your logical brain, that most likely if you had left it there, that person may not have even noticed it because they're involved and engaged in their own life and they're doing their own thing. But because it's so baked in that this potential, this fear is so baked in, it stresses you out and it puts that additional undue stress on you. Exactly. Cause I thought, you know, am I, am I going to get the proper care? Is this person going to, um, you know, not respect me and, and not give me the 100% care that I need, you know, um, because you're talking about, you know, intimate actions in between, you know, when you're incontinent and you need your body bathed and da, 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 you really have to be able to build a trust with someone, you know, and that takes a while, you know, and, and if you can't, if you don't feel comfortable enough talking about this kind of stuff, yeah. you know, eventually I tell you, it, it stressed me out so much. I, I, I sent them away. I refused. And, and I, I asked, uh, a friend of mine, if he would come in and be my be my carer, you know, come in once a day and, and help me. Sadly, from, from where I work, anecdotally, that is much more common than it should be. People refusing or declining assistance because there is a fear of not being accepted or a fear of being discriminated against or rejected or bullied or, you know, abused. Uh, there's a, a need to understand that when people are marginalized, they're missing out on so much, missing out on interaction, and that there are groups of people, I'm going to say the the older LGBT plus community living rurally, that there needs to be more interaction. I mean, the whole COVID thing has caused so many complications uh, on on, on social levels uh, for so many but ideally, I would like to be able to see more support groups for gay men rurally. There are mm-hmm. people like myself who don't want to go to the city. They don't want to become involved in, you know, these larger events, but, you know, want to have the interactions, um, the conversation uh, with with people their own age. Well, I mean, there's there, that is, I think, one of the core things that I've seen since I've been working in this area is a need for opportunities to 
socialize and meet to be available across the country and not just in the big cities rather than a kind of a this is a we do this one thing this one day and then that's it like forgotten about you know when we move on to the next thing it, it needs to be consistent yes i was exactly like when you know when they have the bear events you know they're up in Scotland or over in Germany. And it's like, well, you know, that's just not possible for me to go to, you know, yeah. um, once in a lifetime, I would have the opportunity to go to, to one of those. With the gay social scene, a lot of it is sort of in these periodic events. But then outside of that, you're kind of still a bit on your own and it's up to you to build the connections and meet the people and make the the friends. And it's not that you don't want to do that or you want something handed to you. It's just it's hard to find the opportunities to do that when so much of what's happening is based around drinking and, yeah. you know, that side of things. It, it, it can be difficult to build a community and a connection. And I think if we go back to kind of what you were saying around that community that you find when you were first coming out and when you're first coming to to, to terms with your sexuality and you walk into a gay bar for the first time and you find your tribe and you're like, Oh, this is, this is sort of, you know, th- this is home. This feels like home. This feels like, right. You realize quickly, Oh, actually there's a lot of work that's going to go into to maintaining this uh, or building something out of this. And it, it can be very hard to do that because so much of, of society, particularly for older LGBT people is quite hidden. Yes. And I mean, that's what, you know, a, a couple of the fellas and myself from the older and bolder group, um, we've been, you know, uh, laying the the foundation and the infrastructure to to take events rurally around Ireland to different areas of Ireland where people who, you know, live out on the burn or people who live in the depths of, of Killarney or here in West Cork, that we could find um, places where we can organize events um, you know, you don't need the the, the 19 by 38-foot uh, billboard on the side of the road. <laughs> Gays are meeting there, you know. <laughs> I think that's kind of what we're, that's what we sort of need to move towards is the acceptance. And also maybe there is work to be done in more mainstream society to step away from this idea that, people need to be grateful for the rights that are granted to them and that you can't ask, not that you can't ask for more, but you can't highlight how things could be better once you've had an advance without then being like having eyes rolled at you and being told you're always complaining or to be quiet or isn't it good enough, you know? So I think that striving always towards tolerance, inclusion, acceptance, and making sure that people understand that there's all there's more work to be done is is going to is something that's very important. It's ongoing, James. It's always it's always going to be ongoing because you you want to leave this world better than than, than how you came into it. I mean, that's part of my my personal ethos. You know, I've done the proverbial um, two month backpack across India to find myself. You know. Long about 1992-93, I, I started on a, a spiritual journey that, that gave me tools and enabled me to connect all the different people that I've been in my life together. And like I was saying there a, a moment ago, the culmination of me, the 100% Sean now, 
is made up of all those different people. Um, the good times, the hurts, the devastation, um, and that I've, I've been able to use the, this, this, um, this tool to take out, to extrapolate from those particular people that I, uh, that I, I had been at those times and, and, and take useful uh, lessons from them. This is, a, this is a, a very important thing that's left out of, of teachings to younger people that, that, you know, whatever the reason is for life, um, we have a choice. We, we can go through a situation that tears us into fragments and we can continue to fragment from that or we can regroup, take a step back, look at the scenario from a different point of view, take the lesson that's there and carry that with us. Make sure, you know, we might do it again. We might do it even a third time. But eventually we get enough information and say, I don't have to do it that way. You know, lo losing a partner uh, at 20-something at, at years old, it, it was, it was it, especially the person you discover your sexuality with. That was, that was the, the thing there. I mean, I, I don't hurt any less today than I did back then. And I don't yearn any less for his company as I did back then. I've just developed very strong coping mechanisms. And I, again, here, here's a very important life lesson that, you know, it's like, you can make it through this. If you are a young person struggling with your sexuality, you can make, the, make it through this. You will come out the other side, but you need the guidance. You need experienced people. Society and cultures and humankind for tens of thousands of years have always relied on the experience whether you use it or not is <laughs> a different story. <laughs> but the experience and and the the guidance of of the older person, the elder, the the the, the panel, you know, and and I, it's so important. I, I really I I'm a firm believer that we need this. We need to return a little bit to the to the good points of clanism, you know. Thank you for listening to Invisible Threads. In this time when we are sadly seeing an increase in the hatred and vitriol targeted towards members of the LGBTI plus community online, I need to say thank you and recognise the courage it took for Sean to share his story. To him and to all the participants across the series who have been so generous in sharing their lives, thank you. For more information about LGBT Ireland and the work which we do for older members of the LGBTI plus community or to donate to help us continue our work, please visit lgbt.ie. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode and need to talk, the National LGBT Helpline is available on 1890 929 539. We've also included the details of other organisations that offer advice, support and information in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. This project has received funding from the Government of Ireland's Slaunchy Care Integration Fund 2019.